This is the Westbrook Community Church Sermon Series. Sunday, February 11, 2024. Rebuilding a life takes teamwork. Nate discusses leaning on others in order to rebuild. Okay. Good morning. If we haven't met before, my name is Nate Hayden. I'm the next-gen pastor at Westbrook, which means I work with kids and students week in and week out. And before I get into the message today, I just want to invite you to take that survey. Um, I know that we've talked about it the last couple of weeks. I know Randy just mentioned it um, during our announcements, but that church survey is so important to us really for two reasons. The first one is it gives us feedback if people in our congregation know what we're about. Do they understand the mission? Do they understand what our church is trying to do? When we say belong, become blessed, do people understand that? Do they understand what it means to be a part of a community that wants to do that? That's the first thing. The second thing is that it helps us to understand, okay, people know what we're doing. They understand what we're about, but now are we actually fulfilling our mission? Are we actually living out the things that we talk about week in and week out? And that's really what this survey it's an opportunity for you guys to do. It's an opportunity for you to let us know, hey, do you know what we're doing? And also, are we doing what we said we were going to do? And so that's why it's so important to us that you fill it out. Like Randy said, we're about 10 people away from having good data, having a good amount of people that have filled it out so that we can kind of look at all the data that comes in. And so I'm gonna invite everybody in here who hasn't taken it yet. We have a uh, paper copy out there if you need that. Also, you can just scan the QR code and, uh, and do that at home. Um, but it closes tomorrow, so we definitely need to get those in ASAP. And especially if you are a spouse, if you know your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, if you know they have taken the survey and you haven't, if you could just go in and take it, that would help us out immensely. With that being said, when I was in college, I was a business student at the University of Minnesota. So I was a Carlson grad. And um, there's something funny about business school. And I don't know if it happened in every other part of, of the college, but it happened in business school. And that is we had a lot of group projects. Um, we had a, a worksheet, we had a presentation, we had a paper, any of those things, they would always be in the form of a group project. And I was a TA in college, and so uh, when I was, you know, in college, I was always kind of like, why do we do so many group projects? Why do we do all of this work together? Like, why can't we just do our own thing? And what I realized as a TA is it's actually way easier to grade 20 assignments instead of 80. Right? If you put people into a group project, you don't have to do nearly as much grading. And so I think that that is most of the reason that we did so many group projects. The other one is because in business, you always have to work with other people. And I get that. And so uh, when I was in college, we would constantly be working in group projects. And I remember uh, one time I was put into a group of four. And how many of us know group projects can either be super fun, but most of the time they're kind of lame right? Like we get that, right? And when you get to pick your own group, it's awesome because you get to, you know, hang out with your friends and you get to do stuff together. And if you have friends that can kind of pull the group together, then it's a great thing. Also, there's some times where it's not, right? And it feels like you're doing all the work. And if we're totally honest, there's times where it's not fun, but it's because the other people were doing all the work and you were just kind of trying to slip your name on the paper before it got turned in, right? And so it was, it was kind of like one of those times I was uh, in a group of four and there was three of us in class and this fourth person, we're like, we don't know who this guy is. And so we go to the professor, we say, hey, there's three of us here today. This guy isn't here. We don't know who he is. And she said, oh, that's totally fine. Just start working um, in your group of three. And so we worked together for a month. 
And for a month, we kind of were working on this project. We're getting everything put together. We're pulling all our sources and doing our thing. And then finally, it's the presentation day. So we, we show up to class, and uh, we're kind of getting ready to go. And we see somebody walk in. We've never seen this guy before. And he walks in with a suit, and he comes over to us, and he comes over to our group, and he says, okay, who's going to get me up to speed? And I have to say, um, we did not include him in the group project. But I have to say, it was kind of impressive being that brash, being that brazen. Who's going to get me up to speed? It's a great line, right? It didn't work for him, but it's a great line. And uh, I, I sometimes say in college, I would have benefited if there was credits at the end of the presentation. I'll be honest, there was times I wouldn't have benefited from that, but there was a lot of times I would have benefited from that. I would have said, Nate worked on this slide. Nate brought this to the group. He did this part of the presentation. Um, it would have been just like the movies, right? When you get to the end of a movie, what, what runs, right? It's the credits. And the people that are at the top of the credits, it's always the director and their name is huge. And it's the big actor, right? It's telling you, hey, you know, Dwayne The Rock Johnson was in this movie, right? It's a big deal that this person was the star of our show, as if you didn't watch it for the two hours and already knew that. But they're just letting you know, hey, these people worked on it. And then as you watch more and more of the credits, what do you see? The text gets a little bit smaller and the names get a little bit smaller and you start to have people that you don't recognize and jobs that you don't recognize. And by the end of the credits, at the end of that five or six minutes, you're seeing the guy that was holding the camera, his assistant and his friend are getting credited, right? Like it's starting to get down to just anybody that had tangentially was connected to this movie is getting credited. And today, as we look at Nehemiah 3, as we continue this series, we're going to be looking at the credits when it comes to this story. And in all fairness, in some ways, similar to the credits of a movie, uh, the credits in Nehemiah 3, they're just telling us who worked on this wall. Who was a part of this rebuild process? And they're really good credits, right? They tell us exactly who did what and where. So if we took a map of Jerusalem at this time and we said, hey, they're rebuilding the wall, we could know with pretty certainty who worked on what areas and who did what jobs. And it's really incredible. But here's the funny thing. We're not going to read through Nehemiah 3 today. We're not going to read those 32 verses because there's any big names, right? There's no Dwayne The Rock Johnson. There's no Leonardo DiCaprio or a biblical version of those guys in here, right? Sometimes we read genealogies in the Bible and we say, okay, that was a lot of names, a lot of people I don't know, but at least there were some heavy hitters. At least David was in there, right? Or Abraham or Moses or somebody, right? But in Nehemiah 3, we're going to read, there's a lot of people that we don't know. But there isn't just a lot of people we don't know. There's also a lot of things that we don't know. They're going to talk about a sheep's gate. They're going to talk about this area of the wall up to this tower. And I'll be honest, I don't know what those things are, right? And this book was written for specific people, a specific time, people that would understand what's going on. But I'll be honest, when I read it, I don't always know what's going on. And even the work that they're talking about, right? They're saying, hey, we have a sheep's gate and there's a bolt that's holding it up. And there's, uh, you know, we put these things on the wall so that it would run all the way towards this other wall. And you read that and you say, I have no idea what any of that means, right? It's almost as if it's in a different language, even when it's translated. But the reason that we're reading this today is not because there's a ton of heavy hitters. It's not because we understand the significance of each wall being built. It's not even because we understand the work that they're doing. But the reason that we're reading this today is because it's going to demonstrate a fact that if we want to rebuild a life, if we want to rebuild a wall, if we want to rebuild anything in our life, it happens with teamwork. It happens with other people. It happens when we do it together. And we're going to see that throughout these 32 verses that Nehemiah is showing us that we need every type of person. 
But if we're going to rebuild a wall together, if we're going to rebuild a life together, if we're going to do this incredible work, if we want to change our lives, we have to work on getting the first teammate on our team, the most important teammate. And if I was in kids' church today, I would ask you who that is, right? I would be like, okay, we're about to do something crazy. We're about to do something totally different. Whose help are we going to ask for? And all of you guys would say, God, right? You would say, Jesus. You would say, we're going to ask God for help. And we're going to see that that is the first thing that Nehemiah decides to do. In Nehemiah 3, verse 1, he's going to say, Elishab, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of 100, which they dedicated as far as the Tower of Hanel. See, in the Old Testament times, in this era, the high priest was the religious leader. He was the supreme religious leader. He was the most important person when it came to the Jewish religion. And so Nehemiah puts this verse here at 3.1 on purpose. The first person he writes about, the main eventer, the person that he is going to highlight is the high priest. And he does that because he respects the role, because he understands that this role of high priest is important. And so he puts that one, one. But he also puts it there for a different reason, which is he's respecting the role, but he's also respecting God. See, the high priest in that day, that position was somebody that represented God here on earth to the people, right? But he also represented the people to God. He was their intermediary. And so when you include the high priest, when you say the high priest worked on this wall, the high priest and the other priests were a part of this rebuild, what you're saying is that this rebuild was backed by God. And that's what we should realize in this verse is that Nehemiah is trying to tell us that this isn't just something he wanted to do, but it was actually something that God wanted to help with. And see, we should take a page out of Nehemiah's playbook, right? If we want to rebuild a life, we have to start with God. And as simple as that sounds, as easy, as obvious as that is, as much as it is an answer I could hear in kids' church. If I said, hey, how do we start these things? Oh, well, we start with God. We, we do something, right? We, we invite God to be a part of the process. As simple as that sounds, how many times do we not do that in our lives? How many times do we endeavor to change something about us? We say, hey, I want to be better in this area. I want to do this thing better. I want to fix my marriage. I want to fix my finances. I want to be a better parent. I want to take on more at work. How often do we say, hey, I want to do those things, and we don't invite God into that process at the beginning, and sometimes we never invite him in. We just decide that I'm going to grit my teeth, that I'm going to hold my fist, I'm going to white-knuckle myself to, to change, to having things be different. How often is that what we do? See, but what we have to do is we have to learn from Nehemiah. What we have to do is we have to acknowledge the high priest. And in Hebrews 4, 14, we see about our high priest. As much as Elishab was Nehemiah's high priest, our high priest, in Hebrews 4, 14, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Nehemiah spent the first verse of his credits, the first verse of giving credit to anybody for their work on the wall. He gave it to the high priest because he respected that position. And in the same way, we should give respect. We should give honor. We should acknowledge our high priest, Jesus, because he does the same thing for us, because he is God to us here on earth, but he also represents us to God in heaven. And so it is so important that we honor God first. And honoring God looks as simple as praying. 
It looks as simple as saying, God, I need your help. God, I want to change this area of my life. Will you help me do it? And as simple as prayer sounds, and as simple as the whole thing sounds, prayer is an act of humility. It's a way of saying, God, I need you. If I want to do anything, it's going to happen with you. If I want to change the parts of my life where I know it's overgrown, where I know that it's difficult, where I know that it's broken, I have to invite you into that process. See, if we want to rebuild a life, the first thing we have to do is we have to start with God. We have to follow Nehemiah's lead. But the second thing we have to do is we have to use everybody. See, today we're we're talking about teamwork. We're talking about how we need everybody. And as I thought about times in my life to kind of illustrate this point, I thought of baseball when I was a kid, right? How many of you guys remember youth sports? How many of you guys remember playing? Some of you might even say that was the best day of my life, right? I was was the greatest t-ball player of all time. Right? I put myself up there as one of the greatest t-ball players of all time, right? And some of you probably remember playing youth sports. Some of you coach it now. Some of you are parents where you're waking up at like eight in the morning to go watch soccer, right? Or to go watch a baseball game or to go to a basketball tournament, right? And there's something funny about youth sports, especially at the youngest ages. And it's the idea that everybody gets to play. Everybody gets to bat. And I want to tell you right now that I was the greatest baseball player of all time. I want to tell you that I was the next Babe Ruth, that I was the next big thing. And I don't want to admit in front of you that I was not the guy. I don't want to say that I was the greatest t-ball player of all time. And yet, when we actually had hit a real pitch, I fell apart. But here's what I will say. I was a great fielder. I was an okay pitcher, but I could not hit. I could not hit to save my life. And I remember as a kid, that rule, everybody gets to hit, that benefited me because I was always the last in the lineup. I was always just kind of right there before you just not play, right? And I remember getting excited when I was a kid because sometimes I would be the second to last guy, right? It'd be like, there's some kid that's even worse than me, that that I'm in front of him, okay? At least I'm better than that guy, right? And so I remember when I was a kid, I I knew I was a bad hitter. I'm nothing if not self-aware. And so what I would do is I would, I would come out into the, you know, the kind of warm-up area and I would, I would sit there. I wouldn't swing the bat once because why? Why would I swing the bat? I'm not going to swing the bat when I'm in there. So I would just kind of stand there. I would try and look cool. I'd do the lean. I'd do all the kind of things you do. And then it'd be my turn to hit. And I'd walk up and I'd get in the batter's box and I would stand as close to the bag as possible because I was hoping I would get hit. I was hoping that that ball would just chase inside and it would hit me. And it's not because I liked getting hit with the ball, but it's because I knew I wasn't going to swing. I knew there was no scenario where I was going to swing at that pitch. And so I was just hoping I would get hit by the pitch or somehow he would throw four pitches outside of the zone. See, when we talk about using everyone here at church, uh, we aren't talking about it in the same way we talk about it with youth sports. It's not an obligation in the sense that we have to use everybody, right? Everybody that shows up has to be involved. But rather, we use everybody because we have to use everybody. Because there's people here that have different abilities, different talents, different experiences, different than my own. You have things that are indispensable. And we couldn't, as a church community, we can't exist without you. Because you have something to give. You have something to be a part of. And Nehemiah is going to show us the same thing in these credits. He's going to show us the same thing in Nehemiah 3. In verse 8, we are going to see about two people who are vastly different than each other. Their skill sets could not be more different, and yet 
at the same time, they're used back to back. So Nehemiah 3.8, it says, Uziel, son of Hariah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Okay, look at this verse. We have two people. They would be considered part of the professional class, right? They, they have a skill that you're not born with. It's something you develop over time. It's something that you have to learn. It's something that you specialize in. And so we have one goldsmith, and we have one perfume maker. Now, let's be 100% honest. Being a goldsmith and a perfume maker probably does not mean that you are the first people when it comes to building a wall, right? You're probably not the expert at building the wall, right? And even a perfume maker and a goldsmith, they don't really have anything to do with each other, right? It's not like the goldsmith understands what the perfume maker is doing and the perfume maker understands what the goldsmith is doing, right? But in this verse, they're back to back. They're side to side. They're working on the wall right next to each other. And it's because Nehemiah understands something we have to understand today, which is that we use everybody, that we need them to be a part of our rebuild process. If we're going to rebuild together, we have to use everyone. And as I think about this Nehemiah 3, as I, as I think about the 32 verses we have here, as I read them, what you'll see is that there's 43 different people and groups that are mentioned. You have men, you have women, you have merchants, you have servants, you have tradesmen, you have priests, and you have people from out of town, right? That's an incredible group of people that don't have a lot in common, and yet they're all working towards the same goal, right? They all want to repair the wall. And it reminds me of 1 Corinthians 12. So 1 Corinthians 12, it's, it's Paul's, it's a very long chapter, and it's Paul writing about what does it mean to be a part of the church? What does it mean to be a part of the body of Christ. And realistically, we could pull out any verses from 1 Corinthians 12 and it would be applicable to this idea from Nehemiah, but I pulled out three verses, 21, 22, and 27, because I think they illustrate perfectly what it means to use everybody in our church to be a part of the body of Christ. And it says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. See, what Paul understands and writes about in 1 Corinthians 12 is the same thing that Nehemiah understood when he endeavored to rebuild the wall. And it's that everybody has a job to play. Everybody has a role to play in the body of Christ. Everybody has something they can do to be a part of a rebuild effort. And let me be 100% honest with you. And, and I, I hear this from parents all the time, right? I, uh, I'll speak on a Wednesday, I'll say something, right? And it'll be really basic stuff. Hey, you know, you should read your Bible. You should pray at night. You should come to church, right? I say those things and then I'll have parents come and say, hey, I heard what you said on Wednesday. And I'm thinking, okay, what's this conversation gonna look like? And they say, I totally agree with you. I tell my kids the same thing every single day. I tell them the exact same things you're telling them, but they don't listen to me, Right? They don't listen to me when I tell them to do it, but when you tell them to do it, they'll do it. And it's always funny to me that, that that's true because it's just the way that life is in general, right? We can, we can all get advice from people. Everybody can give generally good advice. Hey, you should do this. You should not do this, right? But we don't listen to everybody. When I have a tea time, when I'm going up to swing and the guy I just met on the second hole is like, hey, you gotta, you gotta move your hands like this. Do you think I listen to that guy? 
right? Do you think I, I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, it's a very insightful guy. What was your name again, right? See, what we have to understand is that we need everybody in the church because there's things that you can do. There's experiences that you have. There's talents and abilities that you possess that I don't possess. There's people in your life that you can talk to that I can't talk to, right? There are people that you can impact that I can't impact. There are places that you can go that I can't go. And what we have to understand is that if we want to rebuild a life together, we have to use everybody because our church community is stronger when you're here. Our church community is stronger when we use your talents, your effort, your energy, and we should be excited about that. We shouldn't look at it as baseball when you're a kid. Oh, well, we have to use everybody, but we should say we get to use everybody's individualized skill set. See, if we're going to rebuild a life together, the first thing we do is we start with God. And that's because we honor him. We invite him into the process. The second thing that we do is we use everyone. We understand that everybody in this room has talents, abilities, and skills that are useful to being a part of the church, to rebuilding lives. And the third thing we have to do, and it's built right off the second one, is we have to build others up. If you were here with us last week, what we did is we took a Jenga block and we wrote on there, we said, I'm rebuilding this, right? And we filled in the blank with, hey, I'm rebuilding this. And some of us this week have started that process. Others of us haven't started that process. But regardless of where you are, whatever you wrote on that block is important, right? The areas of your life where you can identify, hey, this isn't that good and it needs to be better. Any of those, those areas are important. And so what we have to understand is that the rebuilding in our life, that is important work. But let me tell you another thing that the rebuilding you're going to do in your own life, the rebuilding you're going to do with the Jenga block that you filled out last week, that is important work. And yet there's some people in this room, you have another important work you need to do. And it's not rebuilding your own life, but it's helping to rebuild the lives of others. See, Nehemiah, in Nehemiah 3, he, he talks about everybody that's involved in the wall process, but he also shows us something very strategic. He shows us that he was good at leading people because he's going to show us who worked on what areas of the wall. And Nehemiah 3.23 is going to show us exactly the genius of what Nehemiah was thinking. And it says, beyond them, Benjamin and Hasib made repairs in front of their house. And next to them, Azariah, son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. Can we recognize the genius in this? Right? They're building the wall next to their own place. They're building the wall next to their own house. What we have to understand is if you're not a professional wall builder, but you're going to help repair a wall, you're going to care the most about the wall that's protecting your stuff, right? We all get that, right? We all understand that if we're going to care about anything, we're going to care about protecting our stuff. And Nehemiah recognizes that in Nehemiah 3.23. And it kind of reminds me of when I move versus when I help a friend move. I do not own a truck, and yet I feel like I'm constantly getting invited to help other people move. And I'm using the word invited. But people are constantly saying, hey, Nate, can you help me move my stuff? Hey, I got to move from here to here. And I hate moving my own stuff. And I don't like moving other people's stuff even less. And yet I never say no. I'm like, oh, of course. Yeah, sure. I'll help you. And so 
if you've ever moved your own stuff, right, what do you do? You look at all the stuff that you own. You say, oh, this stuff is fragile. This needs to be taken care of. And so what do you do? You take it off of the shelf and you wrap it in bubble wrap and you put it in the box. And then you take that box and you write fragile, right? And then what do you do? You pick it up and you slowly walk it out and put it in the back of the truck. Or if it's really special, you take it out of the back of the truck and you put it right in the cab. It's going to sit right next to you where you drive wherever you're going to go, right? That's what happens when you move your stuff. What happens when you move somebody else's stuff, right? When you see their box that says fragile on it, right? Are you nearly as careful? I know what I do. I pick up that box of fragile stuff. I walk it out to the car and I throw it in there. And then I come back and I get another box of fragile stuff and I throw it in there maybe backwards, right? I go over the head. There's a million different ways to handle somebody else's fragile stuff, but I promise you, I don't handle it like it's fragile, right? That's just the way that it goes, right? Because I care about my stuff more than I care about your stuff, right? And Nehemiah understands that in Nehemiah 3.23. It's why he writes saying, hey, this guy worked on the part of the wall right outside his house, And if we're honest, we fully understand that. If we think about our own lives, we know that we have taken special care with our own stuff and cared a little bit less about other people's stuff. And that's why Nehemiah 3 verse 2 is so different. That's why when we read it, it almost doesn't make any sense because it's completely different than what we see in Nehemiah 3.23, but also what we see in our own lives And it says, the men of Jericho built the adjoining section and Zechariah, son of Imri, built next to them. The men of Jericho built the walls of Jerusalem. This wasn't their town. This wasn't their stuff. This wasn't even their wall to build, right? Jericho is 18 miles away from Jerusalem. And yet, Nehemiah tells us in verse two that they were right there, that they were rebuilding the wall. See, what we have to understand is that if we want to rebuild together, it means that we have to rebuild starting with God. We have to use everybody, but then also we have to build others up. And I'll be 100% honest, this verse doesn't make any sense. Why would you come and work on somebody else's project? Why would you come rebuild the wall to a city that you don't live in? And there's a word that we use in the Bible. It's a a word that is synonymous with Jesus and and we hear about all the time, but that word explains why anybody would work on somebody else's wall. And that is the word love. And it would be impossible to read the Bible. It'd be impossible to read about Jesus without picking up the word love. Even people outside of the church, if they want to talk about Jesus, it's pretty synonymous that Jesus is love. And he tells us that all the time. Jesus talks about love constantly. And I've got a verse in Matthew 22 that is iconic with this idea of love. It is Jesus being so direct about what it means to love other people. And it says, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's an iconic phrase. It is a phrase that has escaped the church world. It has gone far beyond outside of these four walls, right? It is something that has been in the culture. It is something that people talk about, right? They call it the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your neighbor as yourself. It is something that has escaped the church world because it is so different than anything that we see, right? It doesn't make any sense 
on the surface. And there's another story that Jesus told that has also escaped the church world, that has moved into the cultural consciousness because it is so infectious, because it is so different. And that is the story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan. It is a story about loving your neighbor. And there's a reason that it's entered into the consciousness of people that go to church, but also people that don't go to church. There's a reason you can talk about that story outside of these walls and people at least are familiar with it, And it's because it is so radically different than what we experience in our own lives, right? The story of the Good Samaritan. There is a guy who is on a road. It's actually really interesting. The road in the story is the road in between Jericho and Jerusalem. So it fits perfectly in the story in Nehemiah. But it's the road in between Jericho and Jerusalem. And on the way, he gets beaten and thrown on the side of the road. So we have a man that's dying on the side of the road. And then we have two people that separately walk by him, they see him, and they move past him. Some people have said that the way that the road was set up, these people didn't just see him and walk past him, but they fully stepped over him, right? Because they had other places to go. They had other things to do, right? It's not that they didn't recognize he was there. It's not that they didn't see. It's simply that they had other things to do. And then we hear about the star of the show. We hear about the good Samaritan, And the reason he's the good Samaritan is because he sees him and he helps him. Because he sees that this guy has a problem, that there's an issue, that he is going to die, and he helps him. See, what the good Samaritan understands, the reason he does that, is not because that man on the side of the road is his problem, right? That man on the side of the road has his problem and I have my problems. It's not that his problem is my problem. It's that he chose to make his problem my problem, right? He could have been like everybody else. He could have stepped over. He could have moved on. And yet, what does he decide to do? He decides to to reach down. He decides to pick him up. He cleans him off and he brings him to an inn. And then when he brings him to that inn, what does he do? He he says, hey, take care of this man. Do whatever you have to do. Whatever it's going to cost, take care of him. Bring him back to health. And I promise when I come back through, I will pay for whatever's going on, right? Whatever you had to do, I'll take care of. See, the good Samaritan made that man's problem his problem. He sacrificed for him. And the reason he did that is because he knew there was nothing they were gonna be able to do. There's nothing that that man was gonna be able to do unless he helped him in that moment. He was essential to his life. And in the same way, We should look at our work when we build other people up. When we are a part of their rebuild process, we should understand we are essential to that. So what does that look like for us, right? What does it look like for us to live the same way, to live and love self-sacrificially, to give up on our plans the way the Good Samaritan did, right? The Good Samaritan didn't have to do that. He had other things going on, but he sacrificed his plans, his priority, his time, his money, because he cared so deeply about this man on the ground, because he knew he couldn't survive if it wasn't for his help. But what does that look like for us, right? For some people in this room, that's gonna look like sacrificing your time and your money to make food for somebody that just had surgery, for somebody that's shut in, for somebody that just had a baby, right? That's not an easy thing to do. There's only so much time in the day, but I know that there's people in this room that have a talent, ability, and can do that. 
you can make somebody else's problem your problem. There's somebody in here, right? You've experienced what it's looked like to go from not having any money to now having money. And it's not because you hit the lottery, but it's because you learned how to budget, because you learned how to be in charge of your personal finances, right? And so what it's going to look like for you is offering a class to somebody. It's going out and finding people that need your help. They're looking for somebody to teach them how to budget, and you know how to do it. So living and loving self-sacrificially is going to look like using your talent, your ability, and your experience to help somebody else in their rebuild. Some people in here, you have a strong family, right? And that is a credit to you. That is a credit to your spouse. That's a credit to your kids. It's a credit to God. Those are awesome things, but you don't have a strong family just to have a strong family. You don't have a strong family just to have a good time, but you have a strong family because there's people in your life that don't. Your kids' friends, there are people in there that have not great situations, right? They don't have stable environments. And what you can do is you can invite them in. Hey, invite your friend over here. Once a week, he can have dinner with us. He can have a stable environment. He can be a part of our family, even if it's just for a couple hours. See, all these things are self-sacrificial. All of these things mean you give that stuff up to get something else. But unlike most of the things in our life, when we talk about sacrifice, usually we're giving something up to get something else. Usually we're giving up our time, our talent, our energy, but we're going to receive a paycheck out of that. We're going to receive some kind of reward. And here's what I'll tell you. I'll be 100% honest. A lot of these things, we aren't going to get $1. We're not going to give out $1 and get $1 back in, right? It's not that we're going to give out our money. We're going to give out our time. We're going to give out our effort. And what we're going to receive back is more money and more time. And we're just, it's just not how it works. But this isn't without a reward. It isn't without getting something out of it. And that something is purpose. We have purpose. We receive divine purpose. God didn't give us our talents, our abilities, and our experiences so we can just have those for ourselves. But he gave us those things because it's an opportunity for us to reach out to other people. It's an opportunity for us to invite other people to rebuild. It's an opportunity for us to help them rebuild their lives. If we want to be a place where people can rebuild. If we want to rebuild lives together, the first thing we have to do is we have to start with God. We have to invite him into the process. The second thing we have to do is we have to use everybody. When we use everybody, we become a place where people can rebuild. But third, we have to rebuild others. We have to live and love self-sacrificially exactly the way that Jesus told us to. And the final thing we have to do if we want to rebuild lives together is we have to build vigorously. We have to build vigorously. And last week I talked about, we had these Jenga blocks. We wrote down on there, hey, I'm working on this part of my life. I'm working on this area. I'm working on my marriage, my finances, my relationship with my kids, right? There's an endless amount of things that we could write down, but I'm going to ask you a tough question. And this might catch a couple people today. What did you do this week to start that rebuild? What did you do this week to start that rebuild? Right? Did, did you have the tough conversation? Did you sign up for the class? Did you sit your kids down and say, hey, things are going to look a little different out here because we're changing something? It's a tough question, right? It's a difficult question, especially when the answer is, hey, I didn't really do that much. Hey, I, I wrote something on the Jenga block, but it didn't make it out of my car this week. Hey, I wrote something on the Jenga block, but I left it in here. Hey, I didn't even pick up a Jenga block last week because I wasn't here, right? It's a tough question. 
But here's the thing. When we want to build, rebuild a life together, we have to rebuild vigorously. And there's a verse in Nehemiah 3 that looks so different than all the other verses. There's a verse in Nehemiah 3 that sticks out because it's so different and it's going to explain why we have to build vigorously. And it is Nehemiah 3 verses 20. And I think it's my favorite verse from Nehemiah 3 because it's so different. And it says, next to him, Baruch, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house of Elishab, the high priest. If you read through these 32 verses, if you read through Nehemiah 3, what you're going to see is a lot of this person rebuilt this section. This person did this to rebuild this tower. And then you're going to run into verse 20. And verse 20 has a different word. It has an extra word. It's that word zealously. Another translation says vigorously. And it's almost hard to picture because I don't know what it looks like to rebuild a wall in that day right? But, but I basically understand what a wall rebuild looks like. And so when I picture this, I picture Baruch being totally different than everybody else. Nehemiah is writing this and he's saying, oh, this person did that. This person did that. And then he thinks, you know, that Baruch guy, he was kind of crazy, right? That Baruch guy, he kind of rebuilt zealously. He was different than everybody else. And I picture Baruch himself, you know, if I was rebuilding the wall, I'll be hundred percent honest. I would be, okay, pick up the stone. Okay. There we go. One, right. I would get another one. I'd pick it up two. And then I'd be like, okay, mortar, you know, and I'm thinking this is like a side thing for me. I have another job. I have other things going on, right? That's how I would feel. And so I would be just kind of doing it. But I picture Baruch. He was completely different, right? I can picture Baruch. He's picking up these huge stones and he's just throwing them down right? And he's just grabbing them more after more after more. And everybody's looking at him and he's like, dude, this guy really wants to rebuild the wall, right? This guy really cares. And so I picture him picking up these huge stones and throwing them down and throwing them down. And then he grabs the mortar and he doesn't think, wow, this is something else I'm doing right on top of everything else. But what he does, he slaps it down. And he says, hey, this is what I care about. I'm rebuilding zealously. I'm not just here to mess around. I'm not just here to rebuild this wall slowly, but I care so deeply about rebuilding this wall. See, what we have to understand, what we have to do in our own lives is we have to begin to repair zealously. We have to say, this year is going to be different, right? We have to say that unlike every other time where I said I was going to change, this time is going to be different, right? Instead of just saying, well, hey, it'll happen when it happens. I'll become that person when I become that person. What we say is I'm going to chase down that change and there's nothing that is going to stop me. See, the tough question is, hey, what did it look like this week? What did that change look like? Right? There's easy questions, right? Like, hey, what area of your life do you want to change? Right? It, it's easy to list off all the areas of my life that I want to be better. Right? And if you don't have a list for yourself, I'm sure that your spouse has a list for you. Right? I got more laughs here than I did in first service. I thought that was a good joke. Either way, right? We all understand the desire to change is easy. Actually changing is hard actually changing is difficult. But what would happen if we as a church community, we started to rebuild zealously? If we said, hey, I want to repair my marriage. And so the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to sign up for the marriage class. Okay. But what if we move beyond just the basic rebuild? We don't just sign up, but we show up, right? And we don't just show up every week, but we actually did the reading. And we didn't just do the reading, but we have the hard conversations in our life and then we implement them with our spouse. 
What if we looked at budgeting and we said, hey, I'm gonna go through this hard step of budgeting, but I'm not just gonna work on the budget one time, but I'm gonna work on the budget and then I'm gonna implement it in my own life. And then I'm gonna look at the end of the month and I'm gonna hold myself accountable that I do the things I said I was gonna do. And then finally, even crazier, is I'm not just going to budget, follow the budget and be accountable, but I'm gonna do that next month too. What if we wanna rebuild our effort, right? We say, hey, I'm gonna sign up for that new thing at work. I'm gonna sign up for the new thing at school. I'm going to lead something here at church. But instead of just dipping my toe in the water, instead of just telling people I'm gonna do something, what if I said, I'm gonna be a next level leader when it comes to my effort? See, there's, it's easy to say that you wanna rebuild. It is easy to say there's parts of my life that are overgrown, that are decayed, that I need to fix. It is easy to say that, but it is hard to do that kind of change. And the, full, the cool thing, the funny thing in Nehemiah 3 is he goes through all these different people that are part of rebuilding this wall because he understands that rebuilding a life, rebuilding a wall, rebuilding anything comes down to doing it as a team. And see, if we want to rebuild as a team, what we have to do is we have to start with God. We have to invite him into the process. We have to honor him by saying, God, you're going to lead me. The second thing we have to do is we have to use everybody. Everybody in our church is indispensable towards our goal of rebuilding together and being a place where people can rebuild. Third thing we have to do is we have to build others up. We have to live and love self-sacrificially. We have to look different than everybody else. And the final thing we have to do is we have to build vigorously. And as we close today, as we invite our worship team up, we're gonna go into a final song. And this final song is always a moment of reflection. It's an opportunity for you to think about all the different things that we've talked about today. And what I wanna invite you to do in this moment of reflection, I invite you to pray. I invite you to ask God to start your rebuild. I'm inviting you to do step one, which is starting with God, honoring him in that way. And that prayer for everybody is gonna look a little differently. Some people, you've already started, And so you're saying, hey, God, I started this, but I didn't invite you into it, but I'm inviting you into it now, right? And some of you, you haven't started. And so you're saying, God, help me with this beginning process. Help me begin to desire to change and then to start that change. Some of you, your prayer needs to be, God, I know that I have a talent, ability, and experience, something I can leverage for somebody else's good. So Give me that opportunity. Show me the person that I need to influence. Show me the person that I need to be a part of the rebuild. And then everybody in this room, you can pray to rebuild zealously. You can pray to rebuild vigorously, to go at it, to not just start and stop the change for the rest of your life, but I'm gonna start this change. I'm gonna finish this change because God is a part of it and because my church is behind me because I am rebuilding zealously. See, if we want to rebuild as a team, we have to start with God. We have to use everybody. We have to build others up and we have to rebuild zealously. And in this moment of reflection, I invite you to pray and ask God for whatever you need of those four things to be a part of your rebuild. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for today. Thank you for this service. Thank you for this one hour that we're putting aside each week. God, thank you for being a part of our rebuild. God, we're starting with you. We wanna honor you in the rebuilding process in our life. We know that you are the engine. You are the person that pushes the change in our life, God. And so we honor you by acknowledging you first. God, in this moment of reflection, 
everybody in this room is lifting up prayers and saying, God, help me with this rebuild. Help me change the things of my life, right? Help me to build the parts of my life that are overgrown, that are decayed. And so God, we, we pray that prayer together. God, and we pray for zealousness. We pray for love, to love self-sacrificially, to care about other people, to love our neighbors as ourselves. God, and whatever that prayer looks like for anybody in this room, God, we pray in agreement with them. And we pray that this week, that today is the day that we start the change in our life. Today is the day that we look back and we say, that was the day that we started because we started with you and we went as a team. We bless these rebuild efforts. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me.